Our scripture reading today is from Luke chapter 11, verses 14 through 36. You can find that in your pew Bibles on page 869. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, He cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul, And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. In finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, Something greater than Jonah is here. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light... Having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. Well, good morning. I thought I'd start by giving you a a brief overview of my trip to Kansas City. So this past week, I visited Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, joined up with Pastor Wes down there, who has been working on his dissertation. And by the way, if you've been praying for Wes, I know he'd want to say thank you. 
Uh, he put in some long days this week, but he, he finished out this seminar well, got all his assignments done, and got really good feedback on Thursday as he presented. But we met with a number of great gospel men. Uh, we spent our time uh, speaking in classrooms about NETS, our ministry that Mitch mentioned a minute ago. Uh, we interviewed several gospel students that we're very excited about. We interviewed a guy named Patrick, uh, who's from South Buffalo, and, uh, and went to the same community college that I attended and is a Bills fan. And so I just wanted to put Patrick in our suitcase and, and bring him home. Uh, he has a wild conversion testimony plucked out from a, a family full of darkness and saved and, and wants to lay down his life preaching the gospel and shepherding the church. And we'd love for him to do it in New England. So keep praying that God would raise up gospel men. Uh, we're praying that God would bring many up here to train and to go out and plant and revitalize churches. Well, let's look at God's word. Turn with me for a brief minute and a moment of prayer. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. We're grateful to be together. We're grateful to sit under the proclamation of your word, and we thank you that you've given it to us. We thank you that you've given us a a strong and a great Savior, and, and I pray that you'd help us to behold him this morning through the preaching of your word. Help my friends here to receive him by faith, to believe this word, and to do it, and I pray that you would, you would strengthen and motivate our church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, when you think of the church, do you think of it as Clark Kent, or do you think of it as Superman? Is the church, in your mind, generally characterized as mild-mannered, reserved, quiet, just a a simple, plain journalist from rural Kansas? Or is it characterized as a a strong, victorious superhero, faster than a speeding bullet, more powerful than a locomotive, able to leap tall buildings in a single bound? How do you view the church? How do you view our church here in Williston? What's your view of Christ Memorial Church? Is it marginalized, an easily overlooked establishment in Chittenden County, generally inconsequential? Or is it a force to be reckoned with? Maybe you're tempted to think that the school district has a greater influence on our community, or that the UVM Medical Center is more important with its clinics and its care facilities. Heck, even Hannaford and Texas Roadhouse can seem to have a more popular draw than the church, So the church can just appear to be insignificant and irrelevant. Now you like it. That's why you're here, hopefully. But perhaps you're not convinced it's having an impact on outsiders. Well, what if I told you that according to God's God-breathed and inspired word, the church is more like Superman than it is like Clark Kent? Would you want to hear more about that? The church is strong, it's powerful, it's influential, and it drives its superhuman strength from its leader, from its Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So how do you view Jesus? Is he so mild-mannered and gentle that in your mind he ends up being weak and insignificant and irrelevant? Or is Jesus more than meets the eye? As Jesus go goes, so goes the church. 
So how you view him affects how you view CMC. What marked Jesus' life here on earth will affect your view of the church. How is he leading the church today? Well, let's look at the Gospel of Luke and let's take a look at the strength and the power of our Savior and see the strength of his church. So turn to Luke chapter 11 if you haven't already. Our passage begins in verse 14 as Calvin read and that's found on page 869 if you're using a pew Bible. And in verses 14 through 16, we have the introduction to a new section here in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus asserts his kingdom power. In Luke 9.51, Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. And now as he and the disciples travel, Jesus is teaching them and showing them what it looks like to follow. He's mapping out the way of the cross as he resolutely goes to Jerusalem. And part of following Jesus, part of taking up your cross is entering conflict and enduring rejection. That was the experience of the 72 back in chapter 10 when Jesus sent them out as lambs in the midst of wolves. They entered into conflict. They preached the gospel of the kingdom plainly and boldly, and they were rejected. Not everybody liked it. Not everybody received it. So this section, beginning in chapter 11, verse 14, is marked by conflict. It's confrontational. And it intensifies when Jesus asserts the power of his kingdom by casting out a demon. A man has been mute, completely unable to speak because of demon possession. And Jesus acts to deliver this man. And the man speaks. And the people marvel. But don't get too excited or too optimistic about their marveling. The Jews don't seem particularly drawn to Jesus the Messiah. Rather, they're simply recognizing that something supernatural is happening in their midst. They're impressed that something amazing has occurred. Clearly, this man can now speak. But they're not particularly impressed with Jesus or drawn to admire him. And we know this because of their response. In verse 15, some of them say, He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. And in verse 16, others, to test him, keep seeking from him a sign from heaven. So they reject Jesus and his, mis- his message. Some attribute the exorcism to demons. And then others seek a sign. They insist that Jesus do more. It's never enough what he does. This rejection is initiated and led by Pharisees and Jewish lawyers. And we know this for a couple different reasons. One, both Matthew and Mark, when they recount this event, ascribe these reactions to Jewish leaders, Pharisees and scribes from Jerusalem. And two, Jesus will severely rebuke the Pharisees and the lawyers in verses 37 through 54. That's who he targets immediately following our passage this morning. He lambastes the Pharisees and the lawyers pronouncing woes of judgment against them, as we'll see in next week's sermon. So Jesus is rejected by Jewish leaders, and Jesus confronts this rejection. He engages the conflict. First, he confronts the dark accusation that he casts out demons by Beelzebul. That's verses 17 through 28. And then secondly, he confronts the dark sign-seeking of the Jews. That's verses 29 through 36. Now, it says in in verse 17 that Jesus knew their thoughts. 
Jesus responds to what they're, what they're thinking. He did the same thing with Simon the Pharisee back in chapter 7. You've got to be careful when you're around Jesus. In 739, Simon the Pharisee says to himself, the text says, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is and who is touching him, for she's a sinner. And Jesus answers him. He answers his thoughts. Simon, I have something to say to you. Uh, Listen to this parable. These guys need to watch out. They're putting Jesus to the test, it says. They're seeking to justify themselves. They have wrong-headed thoughts and ill motives. We see this over and over again in the Gospel of Luke. And Jesus sees through it all. And he confronts it. He confronts their unbelief, and he confronts their rejection. And he says to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. There's Jesus' premise. Therefore, verse 18, if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? But it won't. So it's illogical to say that Satan is casting out demons. If Satan is behind Jesus casting out demons, if it's being done by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, then Satan's divided, which would mean bringing about his own downfall. And even Satan isn't stupid enough to do that. He's not working against himself. Moreover, in verse 19, Jesus says, And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. Here Jesus is pointing out that the Pharisees have followers. They have disciples. That's what's meant by the word sons. And the Jewish disciples cast out demons. And Jesus says, if your followers cast out demons, do they do it by Beelzebul? Let's let them speak to this. They're not casting out demons by Beelzebul, are they? So the Pharisees' position is inconsistent. It's illogical, and it's inconsistent. And Jesus exposes that. Therefore, God is really at work in this exorcism. And that means that Jesus has come in power to bring his kingdom. Look at the strength of Jesus displayed in verse 20. He says, but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. There it is. Jesus has already been preaching the good news of the kingdom throughout Luke. And here, he has demonstrated its might by delivering a mute man from demon possession. And now he's confronting the Pharisees with that reality of his kingdom. He tells them that he's casting out demons by the finger of God. And immediately the Pharisees would have heard an echo from Exodus. Exodus chapter 8, verse 19. When they heard finger of God, they would have thought Exodus 8, 19. This is the first instance when Pharaoh's magicians couldn't reduplicate the miracles of Moses and Aaron. You remember the the ten plagues back in Egypt. Plague number one, Moses instructed Aaron, and Aaron lifted his staff and he struck the Nile and it turned to blood. But the text says the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. Then with plague two came the promise of frogs. Frogs throughout every home. Uh, The text says frogs in the bedroom, frogs in the bed, frogs in the servant quarters, frogs in ovens, frogs in your kneading bowls, frogs everywhere. 
Aaron stretched out his hands over the waters of Egypt, and frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But it says the magicians did the same by their secret arts. Yeah, look at this, Pharaoh. We can do the same thing. Until you get to plague number three, gnats. Aaron stretches out his staff and strikes the dust of the earth, and it becomes gnats across the land of Egypt. And what do the false religious leaders of that day say at that time, plague number three? What do they say in Exodus 8.19? The magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. This is the finger of God. And they could not reduplicate the miracle with their dark arts. So Jesus looks the Pharisees in the eye, the false religious leaders of Israel who are rejecting him, and he says, but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, if it's by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God, my Pharisaical friends, has come upon you. You see what he's doing? He's confronting the Pharisees and these Jewish lawyers with his power. And in case they're not catching it, he illustrates it in verses 21 through 22. When a strong man, Jesus says, fully armed, guards his own place, his own household, his goods are safe. That's a metaphor for Satan and his kingdom. The strong man is Satan who's guarding his own kingdom. But, Jesus says, when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Do you see that in verse 22? Who's the stronger than he? Who is that? That's Jesus. He's the stronger than he. He's proclaiming himself to be the one who is stronger. The only other place this term is used in Luke is in chapter 3, verse 16, when John the Baptist said, He who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. So Jesus is the mightier than me, according to John the Baptist. And now Jesus uses the same term, and he says, I'm the mightier than he, one stronger than Satan, the one who attacks Satan and overcomes him, the one who takes away his armor and divides his spoil. So Jesus isn't casting out demons by Beelzebul. He isn't exercising demons by the prince of demons. No, he casts out demons by the mighty finger of God. He is the strong one who conquered Satan and plundered his household. Now, how do you see his strength? How does Jesus show his power ultimately? Through his finished work on the cross. This statement of strength is a foreshadowing of what he would accomplish in his death and resurrection. Remember, Jesus has set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem, the place of his crucifixion. And when he arrives there, this conflict will have escalated to the point of death. And Jesus will get the death penalty and he'll be crucified at the hands of lawless men. And in his crucifixion, by God's providence and by God's grand design, Jesus overcame and conquered Satan. Because at the cross, Jesus crushed the serpent's head. Hebrews 2.14 says that through his death on the cross, he destroyed the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. In 1 John 3.8, 
We hear that the, the reason the Son of God appeared, the reason He came and set His face toward Jerusalem, was to destroy the works of the devil. Now, how is this accomplished through the cross? What exactly happened when Jesus died? Well, God, through the crucifixion of Christ, disarmed demonic rulers and authorities. He triumphed over them in Christ and put them to open shame. When Jesus died on the cross, Satan was fatally wounded. He was defanged. His power was destroyed and overcome because, because, brother and sister, it was on account of the cross that you were set free from your bondage to sin. It was all because of the cross that you were delivered from darkness to light. You were brought from death to life. Colossians 2 verses 13 and 14 says it this way, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. Your record of debt, brother and sister, enslaved you. Didn't it? Your trespasses held you captive, and you were dead. And Satan was the strong man who accused you and kept you a prisoner, and there was nothing, nothing that you could do. But then Jesus came in power, and he attacked the strong man and overcame him through his death on the cross, and he took away Satan's armor and divided his spoil, and his spoil was you, dear church. His spoil was you. Jesus divided up the spoil, and he said, Randy, mine. Paul, mine. Brett, you're coming with me. Paulette, you're mine. And he plucked you right out of Satan's hand, and he made you his own. All because he canceled the record of debt that stood against you. He paid that sin debt on your behalf. He absorbed God's wrath against your sin. He took your judgment and stood in your place. And therefore, He has forgiven all your trespasses. All of them. And you're free. In His strength, Jesus Christ divides Satan's spoil. He liberates those who are held captive by Satan because of their sin. That's what He does. And on that basis, He can say in verse 23... Look at verse 23. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. As Jesus divides the spoil, there are those who are with him, and there are those who are against him. There's division over Jesus. There are some who will gather, and there are some who will scatter. Some will side with Jesus and do the work of the harvest. Others will come against Jesus and work anti-harvest. They'll work to scatter, to undo and come against the work of Jesus. Like the Pharisees and lawyers sought to do. They're a clear example of those who were against Jesus and didn't gather with Him. And in verse 23, Jesus is warning them and He's warning you not to scatter. In fact, verses 23 through 26, that's one big warning. In verse 23, he's warning you by stating the spiritual reality very plainly. You're either for me, he says, or you're against me. You're either with me or you're apart from me. There's no place of neutrality. 
Jesus sees it, sees it clear. You're not neutral. You're not neutral this morning. Some of you here know Jesus Christ. You've placed your faith in Him. You've been united to Him. God's transformed you and set you free and made you alive together with Christ. But others of you are like the Pharisees and the lawyers. You're rejecting Jesus Christ. You're resisting Him in unbelief. You accuse Him or test Him or dismiss Him or ignore Him or just find Him to be irrelevant. Whatever it is, whatever you're doing, you're against Him. You're not with Him. You're not gathering with Him. And you're still in bondage to your sin, held captive by Satan himself. You're guilty of sin. You're guilty of following the God of this world. And you have no hope of eternal life. If you die in your sins, you will perish eternally. You'll experience unending demonic darkness in hell. You'll forever be isolated and and hopeless and tormented because of your sins, serving an eternal sentence for your crimes against the eternal God of heaven. But I'm, I'm telling you this morning, I'm telling you this morning, if you'd listen, it doesn't have to be this way. It doesn't. Right now is still the year of the Lord's favor. Even today, Jesus is proclaiming good news to the poor and liberty to those captive to their sins. He's setting at liberty those who are oppressed, those who are burdened and heavy laden with their sin, those who remain in the grip of Satan. Jesus is delivering sinners every day through the proclamation of his gospel as he builds the church. And so I say to you this morning, dear unbelieving friend, come. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ and experience deliverance from your sin. Find salvation in Jesus, the forgiveness of sins, new life in Christ. All you have to do is repent and turn to Him through faith. And maybe today is the day that you'll stop being against Jesus and instead you'll join with Him and enter His kingdom. Today could be that day. Now in the next section... Verses 24 through 26. Jesus is warning. He continues his warning. Now he's warning against empty pharisaical religiosity. He's warning the Pharisees about a kind of moral reform that's merely outward and doesn't include a change of heart. It doesn't include a new heart. He's warning us all about the kind of religion where there's, there's moral order and an appearance of cleanliness, but no new birth. No spirit-induced transformation from within that gives way to newness of life. So look at verse 24. Jesus says, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. Jesus here continues to address the the casting out of demons. The unclean spirit in verse 24 is a demon that's been cast out of a person. Why it travels through waterless places seeking rest, we're not particularly sure. Deserts were known to be associated with the demonic. They were thought of places that that were cursed. No water, no growth, no produce. 
That makes sense, right? No life, no flourishing, no abundance. So, for example, the scapegoat driven out into the desert wilderness on the Day of Atonement back in Leviticus 16 is called Azazel, which is associated with a demon. So this unclean spirit is cast out, but it determines to return to the person from which he was expelled. And he finds his, own, his old residence swept and put in order, but empty. And in his absence, the life of the person was tidied up. There was external moral reform of some kind, but no one else has been living there. So the demon is able to re-enter the person and dwell again. And this time he brings along seven other demons that are more evil than himself. And the last state of that person's worse than it was at the first. This is the curse of empty pharisaical religion with the absence, the absence of the Spirit of God. There's temporary outward reform, but no staying power. There's a kind of change, a kind of religiosity, but there's no lasting, heartfelt perseverance. Peter speaks of the church's false teachers using this language in 2 Peter. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. These leaders have failed to continue in faith. They only appeared to escape Satan's captivity for a time, but again, they're entangled and overcome. They're unable to persevere or continue. And you hear that repetition of Jesus' phrase, the the last state is worse than the first. So the warnings against empty religion, which the leaders of Israel possess in spades, what Jesus has purchased for his people as the stronger than he is a renovation of the whole person from the inside out. A faith-based giving of a new heart, whereby the very Spirit of Jesus Christ comes to reside within the believer. So God's promise through the prophet Ezekiel is particularly poignant. It's this, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. What's the result of God's salvation? What happens when someone truly is set free through faith in Jesus Christ? They persevere in obedience because they've been given the gift of God's Spirit. That's why you see the, the, the little interaction between the woman and Jesus inserted into the narrative in verses 27 and 28. That little portion of Scripture can feel like it's out of place, can't it? As Jesus is speaking, a woman yells out, Blessed is the womb that bore you, and the breast uh, at which you nursed. And this woman extols Mary, the mother of Jesus. You could say she, she venerates Mary. How does Jesus respond? Look at verse 28. He said... Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Blessed are the doers of the word. Blessed are those who obey and continue to obey. Blessed is the family of faith that Jesus enjoys. They are to be extolled. His family of faith. Just as he said back in chapter 8, verse 21, My my mother and brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. That's Jesus' family. 
This is the bright blessing of kingdom faith that Jesus desires to celebrate. He warns against the dark unbelief of the Pharisees and their hollow religion. And he upholds a radiant kingdom faith that's marked by transformation and obedience. This is how he confronts the accusation made against his exorcism of the demon. The accusation that he was doing it by Beelzebul. And then he continues to explain his powerful reign over darkness in verses 29 through 36. And now he does it by confronting the sign-seeking that we saw back in verse 16. He turns as the crowd increases and he addresses the Jewish insistence to always seek a sign. He says, this generation is an evil generation. You see that in verse 29? It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. That's confrontational, isn't it? This generation of Israel is evil. These Jewish leaders are wicked to always be seeking a sign. That's what Jesus said, especially when God's Messiah is right there in their midst. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, Jesus said, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. And guess what? Jesus is the Son of Man. He's right there. Jonah went to Nineveh and preached. He spent three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish and then was vomited out upon dry land. And he preached. And Nineveh repented. Now Jesus has come to Israel and he's preaching. And the Jews are rejecting him. Gentiles repented at the preaching of Jonah. But Jews refused to turn at the preaching of their very Messiah. And Jesus is greater than Jonah. He's greater than King Solomon, and he's greater than the, the prophet, of, uh, prophet Jonah. Look at verse 31. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold... Something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south is a reference to the queen of Sheba that we know from 1 Kings chapter 10. She's a Gentile who is attracted to the wisdom of Solomon. She came from the ends of the earth to hear Solomon's wisdom. And when she did, it it took her breath away. And she blessed Yahweh and celebrated his love for Israel. Now Jesus, the Messiah, is in Israel the one who is the very essence of wisdom from God, the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Wise King Solomon was designed to display Jesus Christ. He was a type of Christ. And the Jews, the Jews don't show any queen-like interest in Jesus whatsoever. They can't recognize God's wisdom when it's standing incarnate right in front of them. And so at the final judgment, this Jewish generation will stand condemned by the Gentile queen of Sheba. Likewise, the men of Nineveh will rise at the judgment and condemn this generation. That Gentile city heard the preaching of the prophet Jonah as he staggered into town, freshly vomited from the belly of the great fish, and they repented. They repented at his preaching. Now Jesus is in Israel, the quintessential prophet of God, the one to whom all the prophets pointed, and the Jews aren't listening. They're just not listening. 
Jonah was a type of Christ. He was meant to point forward to Jesus Christ. For just as Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man, so will Jesus, spend three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. When he dies on the cross, he'll be buried. And then after three days, he'll rise from the dead. The grave will spit him out. And he'll preach repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And his message of salvation will be carried to Judea and Samaria and to the Gentile ends of the earth. This is the true sign of Jonah. Jesus is the great sign. And for the Pharisees and lawyers to be seeking other signs means they're missing him. They don't see him. They're blind to his salvation. They're engulfed in religious darkness. And even after the resurrection, they'll stumble over Jesus. Some Jews will respond in faith. The church will be established in Jerusalem, but they're the exception. It will be, be, it will be because of Jewish persecution that the early church goes and takes the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and eventually to the ends of the earth. This is why Jesus says to the suffering and tormented Lazarus in Luke chapter 16, If they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. At the final judgment, this Jewish generation will stand condemned by Assyrian Gentiles from Nineveh. So do you see the greatness of Jesus? He's the true wisdom of Solomon. He's the true prophet, the one who rose from the dead. And he's the light of the world. He's the lamp that dispels the darkness. Read verses 33 through 36 with me. No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. Jesus is the light of the world. He's the lamp in verse 33. He dispels the darkness. He gives light to all who receive him. And he hasn't been hiding. He's been in the open healing, healing crowds, casting out demons, and teaching. God, Jesus' words are light. He's been openly proclaiming the truth of the gospel. All who see Jesus for who he is come to the light. They enter the kingdom, for Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom of light. If in verse 33 the focus is on Jesus as the light of the world, then verse 34 is all about response to Jesus. In verse 34, you see the reaction to the light. Your eye is your perception. It's your, your ability to actually see Jesus for who he really is. And so on one hand, if your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. This means that if you see Jesus rightly, your whole person becomes light. If you receive him by faith, you're made light. You become light. But if your eye is bad, you ever flip on the bathroom light? in the middle of the night or turn on the closet light after waking up early before the sun rises? How do you react? How do your eyes receive that sight? You flinch, don't you? 
they don't receive the light very well. It actually hurts. Even the glow from my coffee maker, if I leave the lights off, hurts my eyes in the morning. Jesus says, but if your eye is bad, if your eye is evil, it's the same word that's used to describe the generation of the Pharisees back up in verse 29. If your eye is evil, then your body is full of darkness. Your whole person is darkness. How do you react to Jesus? You flinch. You react badly. You reject him. This is unbelief. Jesus gets missed, and you remain captive to the darkness. So this verse is a call to faith in Jesus Christ. You're to view him by faith with the eyes of your heart open and ready to receive him. And if you do so, you'll be released from darkness, and you'll be made light. You'll actually be made light. The Pharisees and lawyers, though, remain in darkness, and they refuse to see Jesus as the light of the world. They reject him. They're blind to him. So Jesus issues a warning. Be careful, lest the light in you be darkness, he says. Jesus is saying, watch out! If your response to me is dark unbelief, then you're in trouble. Be sure that you're light. Respond to me in faith. Unbelievers, scoffers, accusers, sign seekers, religious hypocrites, beware. It's a warning and it's a beckoning to come to the light, to come to salvation. Now our passage ends in verse 36 with a declaration that those who have faith in Jesus Christ are wholly bright. Do you see that phrase? Completely bright. They become like lamps themselves. They are holy and completely transformed from the inside out. Darkness is expelled and Satan's grip is thwarted. And when you place your faith in Jesus, the light of the world, you become the light of the world. You, church, become the light of the world. What does the Bible say about you, brother and sister? It says in Ephesians 5.8, you were at one time darkness. You were at one time darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. John 8.12 says that you have the light of life. 1 Thess 5 says that you're children of the light. How did this happen? Dear church, how did God deliver you from darkness and make you his light? How did he do it? It was through the strength and the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ, wasn't it? You were made light because Jesus is a powerful Savior. He's the kind of Messiah that mightily casts out dark demons and crushes Satan's head. There came a time back in your days of darkness and sin at some point when Jesus was preached. You heard the proclamation of Christ crucified and you were converted. You saw the light of Jesus Christ as the gospel was preached. Or to use the language of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, you were created. You were given new life through the proclamation of Jesus Christ as Lord. God who said, let light shine out of darkness, shone in your hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And you were converted. God spoke into the darkness at creation, right? He said, let light be. And poof, there was light. Likewise, brother and sister, God saw your dark and wicked heart. And in mercy, 
and grace and kindness, God said, light, be, and poof, there was light. And you were no longer blind. And you were no longer in the darkness. You could see the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. Now that is a strong and a powerful Savior. One who's able to speak and give you new life. Praise God who has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Praise God for Jesus Christ. Now you are children of the light. You have the light of life. You are light in the Lord. You, CMC, you are the light of the world. Or as verse 33 says, You are wholly bright. You are wholly bright. Get your minds around that, Christ Memorial Church. You are wholly bright because of the grace of God that's yours in Jesus Christ. All because the stronger than he and the greater than Solomon and the greater than Jonah and the lamp that shines bright has made you light. And you're bright. Why? Why did God make you so bright? Not so smart, so glowing, <laughs> so radiant. Why did he do it? So you can advance his kingdom and build his church with confidence. Listen to a couple verses. Maybe write these down. Daniel 12.3 says, Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. You were made light so that you can bring others to the light. You were made righteous so you could proclaim God's righteousness in Jesus Christ. Or Philippians 2, verses 14 and 15. Paul writes, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. You live in a dark world that that desperately needs Jesus Christ. And you shine as lights in this dark world. Or 1 Peter 2, verse 9. says, You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of, of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Church, the privilege is yours. You get to herald the wonders and the beauty of who Jesus is and what He has done. This is what the early believers did in the book of Acts. Luke, volume 2. Jesus ascended into heaven and He he sat down at God's right hand and the apostles proclaimed repentance and the forgiveness of sin in Jesus' name to all nations just as Jesus had told them to do. And the believers gathered together and then they went out and preached. And then they came and they gathered together and then they went out and preached. Peter preached and Paul preached and Stephen preached and when Stephen was killed, those who were scattered about, what they do? They preached the gospel And God's word marched on. God's word marched on as if it was advancing with military power. That's the language that Luke uses in the book of Acts. In chapter 6, verse 7, he says, The word of God increased in Jerusalem. 
Then in Acts 12.24, the word of God increased and multiplied in Judea and Samaria. See a pattern? And then in Acts 19.20, the word of God increased and prevailed mightily among the Gentiles. So the church proclaimed Christ with confidence, with boldness, and the ascended Lord Jesus Christ built his church. The reigning, powerful King of Kings, through the proclamation of the gospel, caused his church to advance. The light of the world sent his bright followers into the darkness, and they took salvation to the ends of the earth. And now that same mission is ours. We have the same call. We serve the same ascended Lord. He hasn't left his position of authority at the right hand of the Father. And we proclaim the same gospel that has as much power in it today as it did back then. So dear friends, how do you view the church? Plain and mild spoken, nice, but ineffective, mostly insignificant, or like Superman. Powerful, strong, conquering and overcoming darkness, On the attack, filled with light, advancing, multiplying, increasing, prevailing mightily. You're light, CMC. How do you view the church? How should we think of ourselves? Are we as significant as the UVM Medical Center? We are. We're more significant. We have the hope of eternal life. We can provide healing for the soul. We can make those who are lame with sin walk. Those who are blind in their sins see. The crippled leap for joy. We can set the captives free and deliver those who are in darkness. The church is like Superman, and the world needs it to come to the rescue. Do you ever just stop and remember that the world buzzing all around us is captive to the power of darkness? You ever think about that on a Sunday morning? All the cars driving by, all the unbelievers in Chittenden County that are waking up, reading their newspaper, if anybody does that these days still, having breakfast, they're in darkness. They're trapped in darkness. And people are hurting, aren't they? People are confused. People are deceived. That's what it means, I think, to be in darkness. They're lost. They're lost. No wonder that they're aimlessly advocating for all kinds of things. No wonder that they're in love with this world. No wonder that they resist you when you share the gospel with them. It's like you're flipping on the bathroom light. No wonder they flinch a little bit. They're hurting, they're broken. And doesn't your heart break for people who are trapped in the darkness? Boy, that's a rebuke to me. I need to confess that that I can be very tempted to just look down my nose at the world and pass judgment on them and be filled with kind of some condemnation and, and dismiss them. Then I hear Jackie stand up and talk about her dear friend Ruth. And doesn't it just move you to think there are people that are just trapped in the darkness? They're blind. 
And they're desperately in need of being released from their sins. They're desperately in need of light. And CMC, CMC, you are the light of the world. You are. Your mission is no different than the one that Jesus gave to the Apostle Paul in Acts 26, verse 18. You are to go to the lost in order to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith. That's your calling. That's your privilege. That's the opportunity that you have, brothers and sisters. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, and now he's enthroned on high, and he's seeking and saving the lost through the work of the church. I told the guys at our October rally point on Friday the the 21st that we're working to promote evangelistic zeal among the men here at CMC so that we might bring in outsiders through gospel proclamation and invitation to gospel events. That's the vision of the men's ministry. We want to get excited about ministering the gospel to outsiders effectively and powerfully. So we're sharing and praying and working together and motivating each other for the sake of our lost family members and friends and co-workers and neighbors. We want to regroup with one another and rearm for battle and relaunch, ready to return to the mission field for the sake of Christ. We want to fan the flames of evangelistic zeal so that by God's grace, lost sinners who are trapped in darkness might be rescued from their sins and rescued from hell. So men... Are you on board with that? Are you on board with the vision of our church to rescue the lost? And are you all in? And ladies, do you want to join with us? I actually kind of think we're finally joining with you. Now, we're all in this together, aren't we? Teens and youth, do you want some purpose in your life? Here's some purpose in your life. Get right with the Lord Jesus Christ. Become light And then proclaim light for the rest of your lives. There's a life of purpose. So I'm saying let's do it together, brothers and sisters. Men, women, youth, let's link arms and give all our energy and effort to proclaim the gospel to everyone around us. Let's fix our gaze on our strong leader, the one who attacked and overcame our enemy, the one who rose from the dead and crushed the head of the serpent and then ascended to the heavens. And let's believe that right now he's powerfully building his church, causing it to advance through proclamation of the gospel, and let's labor to make disciples of light as we work together as a church. I think CMC is like Superman. I do. Let's change out of our Clark Kent suit, and let's embark on the bright advance of Christ's church. Let's pray. Oh, dear God. We ask you for grace and for help to do what your word provokes us to do. And we confess it's easy to get excited on a Sunday morning and it's difficult to execute Monday through Saturday. But we're wanting to ask that you'd help us because you've done it throughout history and you are doing it today. We catch glimpses of that. Would you continue to empower us to be a witness in our community and would you win the lost and deliver them from the darkness? God, we commit it to you. We pray that you'd be merciful and strong in our lives and in our church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.